Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroke. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Healthcare is literally a force of nature in our economy. It's been in the news quite a bit lately, and like it or not, as time goes on, everyone will be consuming more, not less of it. Today, we'll discuss the future of healthcare from a business perspective and how mergers and acquisitions will factor into the inevitable changes coming to healthcare. I'm pleased to be joined by Matthew Hannes, executive producer and host of Business of Healthcare. Now in his 13th season, BOH is an online platform where Matt interviews senior leaders in healthcare. BOH estimates 118,000 decision makers are responsible for 80% or more of the buy and sell sides of U.S. healthcare. Just about 20,000 of these very decision makers participate in BOH's audience. That's about one in six, which is a respectable share of any market. It is for this audience that BOH was purpose-built to identify and help propagate proven innovations, elevating mission and margin more rapidly. Wow, one in six, is that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. Matt, thanks for joining me, and welcome to the program. Patrick, thank you so much for inviting me on. Now, we'll get into business of health in a moment. First, tell us how you get to this point in your career. Well, I tried to make as many mistakes as possible, and this is the culmination. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, I spent about 25 years in healthcare. Most of that time, I've either worked on the uh, vendor side, selling data solutions to health systems, large payers, and health plans, uh, or uh, working within a health system, Mercy in St. Louis, um, to uh, have the experience of, of actually doing the work of healthcare. And um, ultimately, all of those experiences culminated in a passion for entrepreneurship uh, and for finding the innovations that I felt could really transform our healthcare delivery system in the United States. When we see BOH's core statement, which is mission and margin, uh, with mission, we, we get that because healthcare and doing good and providing care to people, there, there's the passion, the mission. It's the margin that people start looking at real quick. Uh, why don't you explain what you mean by mission and margin is the business of healthcare? Healthcare makes up about a fifth of the U.S. economy, and any sector of the, every sector of the economy is important. For healthcare, one of our challenges, though, is the cost of healthcare has continued to rise at a rate faster than pretty much any other aspect of our economy. But when you look at the quality of healthcare as measured by access, patient satisfaction, survival, life expectancy, all the broad measures of healthcare, we don't do very well in this country. So we have a major portion of our economy which is getting progressively more expensive, and on most measures of quality, it's, it's not very good. And so I believe that this is unsustainable. Now, the laws of physics tell us that all systems come back into balance. And so there's a couple of different ways that we can see the U.S. healthcare system coming back into a healthy balance in terms of cost and quality. One of the ways, though, uh, which tends to be the primary focus right now, is trying to cut payments to physicians um, and uh, try to manage 
healthcare by managing how consumers consume it and managing how it's provided. And so our belief is that these approaches are unsustainable and that there are at the same time very, very sustainable ways to improve the effectiveness and efficiency of our healthcare system. So that's what we try to bring to bear. Mission is really about all the things you and I can agree on, quality, access, patient satisfaction, physician and other provider satisfaction. Margin is recognizing that like any other part of the economy, the providers who deliver healthcare must be able to make a profit in order to make it a sustainable business. We just need to figure out how to balance that with the cost to the consumer. So the problem that you mentioned out there, which is making it a challenge for us, is that cost of healthcare continues to go up, quality continues to go down. Um, I would think that a lot of people think, well, the more it's intuitive almost that if you spend more, you should get better quality. Are there any specific reasons why the uh, the cost goes up and yet we're not getting the value of the benefit? Yes. There's a, there's a couple of different reasons. Um, one issue, uh, which is uh, very microeconomics, is pricing. Um, we know that one of the biggest drivers of the cost of health care is the price uh, that's charged for healthcare. Um, there's an enormous set of problems around understanding price. And you, God forbid, you should have to go to the hospital for a surgery. Um, it's extremely difficult to understand what that's going to cost you and what the cost would be for you to go get that exact same procedure in other settings. Now, why is it so complicated to understand price and the cost of healthcare? Well, I believe that a big part of that is we've got a lot of intermediaries in our delivery system. And too many intermediaries uh, can cause such a separation between the consumer of healthcare, the provider of healthcare, and the payer of healthcare that we create a whole morass of complexity. And so I think a big aspect that we can look at is why do we have so many intermediaries? So many people that handle multi, uh, handle healthcare transactions multiple times, and why is it so hard to get that data to be meaningful to the consumer? I think another cause that we face in our system is the regulatory constraints. I'm not suggesting that healthcare should become an unregulated industry. I think we can all agree that of just about any industry in the U.S., we want to have good regulation over healthcare to protect the consumer and protect the providers of healthcare. The problem that we face today, though, is that the regulatory environment that healthcare providers face is so confusing and so complex that it's almost impossible to comply. I'll give you a concrete example. A typical health system reports somewhere in the order of 4,000 different quality metrics each year. Most of those quality metrics, most of those 4,000, are actually redundant metrics that are being reported to different organizations in slightly different ways. Another issue in the regulatory side are the constraints of the Stark Laws. The Stark Laws were created to prevent or to discourage physicians from referring patients to treatment from which the physician would profit. 
The problem with that is if we ask a physician to take accountability for a patient's total spend and for that patient's quality of care and their overall quality of life, which is the concept of fee for value, if we're going to ask physicians to do that, unlock their ability to make those decisions and to be able to refer patients to the providers that they most want to work with and potentially refer them to themselves for things like imaging and other services that are adjacent or ancillary to the primary purpose of care. These issues of so many intermediaries and the regulatory constraints that are so confusing create an enormous part of the enormous waste of the health, of our delivery system. Today, we spend about a third of our healthcare dollar on waste, things that do not provide value, and a decent chunk of that waste is directly related to too many intermediaries and enormous regulatory constraints. Wow. I think that when people look at healthcare, they think about you've got the only way you address this is either you have universal care, care for all, unlimited, which a lot of people would say, well, that means care for nobody because the system would be overrun. Or the other extreme is fear where there would be extreme rationing out there where some arbitrary person will dole out allocation of healthcare uh, by some abstract uh, basis. So you've got fear on both sides, but it's really a false choice. It's not all of one or, you know, all this or, or nothing. There, there are models that are being set up and there, there are ways that uh, are being tried to go forward. Why don't you talk about those types of models? One of the fundamental trends in healthcare is the shift from fee for service to fee for value. The basic idea is that today when a physician bills for a service they provide or a hospital bills for a surgery that was performed in one of their operating rooms, they essentially are billing for units of work performed. They're not charging for a knee replacement. They're charging for all of the components that go into a knee replacement. And so the concept of fee for value is that you charge or pay providers for the outcome that they're delivering. The knee was replaced, no infection occurred, the patient came out of the procedure with a reasonable period of recovery. Those concepts around fee-for-value create far better aligned incentives between the providers of healthcare and the payers of healthcare. And I, I just want to touch on your point about um, yeah, I think you touched on sort of the Medicare for all concept. And it's important to recognize um, three things about our current U.S. delivery system. First, we cost per capita somewhere between 30% more and 200% more than the rest of the delivery systems in the world, like that in Britain, Canada, Sweden, Nova, or, uh, Sweden or Switzerland. Before we toss those systems out as being un-American or undesirable, consider the fact that they generally provide much better access to care. More people can get to care faster. They cost on a per capita basis far less than our system does. And in general, their consumers of health care report being better satisfied with the care that they receive. Now, I'm not arguing that those systems are perfect, 
And I'm certainly not arguing the idea that Medicare for all is a particularly good solution. But I would want to differentiate between the concept of a single payer system versus the concept of universal health care. A single payer system essentially says we're all going to agree that one entity is going to pay for health care. doesn't say what the rules are about that. It's just saying that each of us that pays money into health care is going to pay it to one place, and that entity is going to be the entity that pays the providers of health care. And that's how most of the delivery systems in the industrialized world operate. In the United States, we kind of have that because 70% of the health care provided in the United States is paid for by the government. Most people forget that it's a relatively small portion of health care that's paid for by the consumer and large employers. So a single-payer system does not necessarily mean universal health care. Universal health care takes it a step further and says everybody gets health care and the government's going to pay for it. Two really different ideas, but related. Well, let's focus on uh, M&A on the physician side of this industry because we've got the, the large health systems and we've got the large uh, institutions and then you've got the phar pharmacy uh, development, product, uh, uh, medical devices, and everything like that. Let's just look at the physician provider side of the industry. What do you see for the future of physicians in uh, healthcare as we try to change into this fee-for-value uh, emphasis? I think physician practices for the next five to 10 years are in a race for lives. And what I mean by that is if you take the concept of fee-for-value, which has generally pretty solid evidence to indicate that it produces better healthcare value for the consumer and the payer, and the provider. If, if you agree with that premise, then that means that physicians are in a race to find themselves, find ways to be in contractual arrangements where they have accountability. If I'm a primary care practice, it behooves me to try to enter into contracts where I take on the risk of a Medicaid population, a Medicare population, that I go directly to employers and contract with those employers to serve their employees and the employees' families. Those sorts of arrangements, managed care contracting, if you will, um, are the strongest position for a physician to be in in a given market. If I, as a physician practice, hold contracts either for the bundles of healthcare, like I'm a surgical practice and the bundle for doing orthopedic surgery for a large employer, or I, I'm in the primary care space and I'm going to contract for the quality of care for, the entire, for an entire population, I'm guaranteed to be sitting at the bird's eye view of how the money moves in healthcare. If I don't have the contract for lives, that means that I'm going to be subcontracted to somebody else. And so I believe the essence of the M&A space for the physician world will be the, the race for lives. Those physician practices that have built the infrastructure and the capacity to take on population risk of various sorts that can demonstrate their value in measurable ways, those organizations will continue to expand contractual relationships and exclusive network relationships with payers 
and ensure the flow of patients to their doors. That requires an enormous amount of work and infrastructure. And frankly, many, many physician practices are not spending those dollars. So I think from an M&A perspective, I don't think we're going to see much more acquisition of physician practices by health systems. We've seen that market cool significantly. In fact, there are signs of a number of physician practices unwinding their relationships with health systems. What I do think we'll see is acquisition and merger between physician practices, specialty groups merging into multi-specialty. And I would expect that when you look at the 4,000 largest physician practices in the country, those organizations will likely consolidate. And in 10 years from now, I would predict that we'll have half of those practices that occupy the largest group of physicians. You spoke a while earlier about where we've got a lot, a big layer of intermediaries uh, involved between provider and patient. And if there was a way that if we get the physician physician practices moving toward this fee-for-value model, then physician groups are going to be consolidating and one group will buy another and so forth. Does that translate also to possibly them buying other facilities, imaging centers, surgery centers, uh, physical therapy? You know, is there room for vertical integration and how would that look? Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I feel like the the trend there is a combination of the race for lives. Um, if I'm a physician practice, I can provide a much better population health solution if I've got pretty good control over lab, pharmacy, uh, imaging, rehab, physical therapy, those sets of services that are ancillary to the work of a physician but are critical to achieving a particular outcome for a patient. So that vertical integration um, trend, I think, is, is very likely. And I think that trend comes in two different flavors. One, fav- one flavor is the vertical integration of healthcare services, like I just described. But the other is vertical integration in a manner to disintermediate many of the non-value producing participants in the healthcare ecosystem. I'll give you an example. If a physician practice had the ability to manage the total, all the healthcare transactions for one of their patients, and they're in a population health contractual arrangement, they probably are gonna have a much better understanding of the spend of that patient and be able to manage that spend more effectively. So I can imagine, or I can see, physician practices getting better at being able to do the data of population health and perhaps disintermediating stakeholders by directly contracting with employers or contracting with employers in a manner that takes advantage of less uh, uh, brand name sorts of health plans and more health plans that are designed to serve physician practice needs as much as they're designed to serve large employer needs. Is there going to be need for some regulatory reform in order to do this? I think there is. We've we've already seen um, 
the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services signaling that they want to soften or weaken the stark regulations that prevent self-referral. We're seeing uh, several rulings that have come out of the Federal Trade Commission that solidify the ability to, for independent physicians to contract together uh, with health plans and other payers uh, without getting into antitrust problems. So I feel like from a regulatory perspective, the three big things to be watching are stark laws, antitrust law, and then a third area, which is CON, Certificate of Need. Certificate of Need constrains in about 20 states of the 50 states in the union, about 20 states use uh, CON laws to constrain the ability to create new imaging centers or add new surgery suites. Those constraints on the surface make an enormous amount of sense because they prevent the addition of unnecessary healthcare services, which often leads to an increase in utilization. The problem with CON laws is they often get in the way of a physician practice being able to add imaging and other services to their capabilities in achieving that vertical integration. So from an M&A perspective, the loosening of those laws would suggest an acceleration in the merger of physician practices and the expansion of practices through this vertical integration process. Could you see owners of medical facilities, I don't know if they're exclusively physicians, they're uh, as opposed to medical groups and physician practices by law have to be owned by and run by physicians. But when you've got things like kidney dialysis centers or labs, uh, those don't have to be owned by physicians. Could there be a situation in M&A where you could see a network, uh, multi-state network of labs buying physician groups? Does that happen? I, I don't know that I've, I've, I'm aware of that particular example occurring, um, but I'm 100% sure that there's strange bedfellows in these in these the outcome of these acquisitions. For example, United Healthcare acquiring Devita, the largest uh, dialysis business. Well, turns out United Healthcare is currently the largest employer of physicians in the United States, and that that's kind of a surprising number because we all think of them as a health insurer. But in fact, they're a provider of healthcare. We also see pharmacy, retail pharmacy businesses moving aggressively into the providing of healthcare services, uh, being able to walk into a clinic at a Walgreens to get your care taken care of. In those cases, it's not actually, in most cases, the entity like the pharmacy is not necessarily employing the physician but they're contractually enabling the physician to practice care, and there's movement of money. And so I would argue that if it isn't a merger, on um, in fact, in many cases, it's a merger in reality. The great interviews you have, and they're in HD quality video and so forth on business of healthcare. Matt, how can our listeners find you? Absolutely. They can uh, find us on our website at boh series.com or they can search for us on the web search on business of healthcare and our red logo and you'll see us pop up pretty high on the list both our website our podcast channels our linkedin and our twitter as well matt thank you again for joining us and we'll talk again soon 
Thanks so much, Patrick. Thank you for having me.